Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine, broadcasting today from Agreco Studios. Agreco, powering the Permian. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. Welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. We're going to be joined by David Ramsdenwood, recent best-selling author, five-star rating on Amazon. We're going to talk about oil and gas. This guy is a great spokesperson. He's worked in the oil and gas industry. You definitely don't want to miss this show. But before I bring my co-host on David Blackman and David Ramsdenwood, I'd like to tell you about an upcoming mixer we are having in Houston, Texas. It's going to be at Jonathan's the Rub, which is located in the Energy Corridor on April the 22nd. It's 5.30 to 7.30. If you've been to some of our mixers, you know there's always great attendance. There's a lot of networking and yummy food. So if you want more information or you want to attend, please go to shale, S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com and click on the banner ad at the top. Again, that is 422 Jonathan The Rub in Energy Corridor in Houston, Texas, 5.30 to 7.30. To get your tickets, you can visit us on our Facebook, which is Shell Magazine, or in the oil patch. We'll have information on how to attend the mixer, as well as you can join and buy your tickets at shellmag.com. And I'd also like to tell you about the latest issue of Shell Magazine. It's out and hitting the streets as we speak. It is on the Biden-Kamala administration and their energy policies and what it means for you. Obviously, there's a lot of chatter on uh, oil and gas or anti-oil and gas from this administration and regulations coming out. And you need to know how this affects you. Rather, you're a listener or you work in the energy industry. Trust me, it's going to affect you. So it's an issue that you definitely want to read all about. For more information, you can visit our Shell Magazine page on Facebook or you can just go to shalemag.com and click on the latest issue. Again, that's S-H. A-L-E-M-A-G.com. And now it's time for me to welcome on my co-host, David Blackman. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's a beautiful day in Texas, isn't it? It sure is. And we've got a lot to discuss because there's a lot going on here in Texas and worldwide when we talk about oil. So let's get started by, give me an update. We, I know that OPEC Plus is meeting. There's been a lot of media chatter that they are pretty much going to hold the line with the cuts. Uh, give me your thoughts on where are we with OPEC Plus? Yeah, it's good. It's going to be a, it's a, a good positive meeting this week. Um, both Russia and Saudi Arabia, who are the key players in that whole deal, because they control about 10 million barrels a day each, um, both said that they're in favor of extending the current cuts to production that they've had in place since the 1st of February. Um, and Saudi Arabia even wants to extend them through June. Uh, which, uh, you know, they're trying to decide officially, they're trying to decide what to do in May, but Saudi wants to extend them all the way through June. And of course, that would be very positive uh, for maintaining the current level of crude prices um, on the global market, because let's face it, uh, the OPEC plus countries are really controlling where the price of oil is, and they have for several years now. So uh, just another good positive meeting from OPEC Plus, and uh, it will have a stabilizing effect on the markets. Sounds good. Let's talk about oil prices because they've kind of been swinging a little bit up and down. Pull out your crystal ball again and tell me a little bit about where we are with oil prices because we've had this discussion over and over <laughs> and it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. Where yeah. are we again? It's, it's kind of amazing. It never stops, does it? It uh, never ends. Yeah, we've had 
two weeks of pretty pretty severe volatility. You know, the price will drop five percent one day and go up three percent the next, and down two and up one, and uh, that's continued uh, this past week as well. Um, but again, I think OPEC Plus is kind of stabilizing that. We had a pretty strong drawdown of, of crude oil inventories in the United States this week that surprised everyone. Um, there had been concerns, of course, that uh, uh, global demand might soften up because Europe was having uh, another rise in the number of cases of COVID, but uh, that appears to be calming down too. Um, so I think we're just on the, the, the immediate outlook, I think, is probably for a leveling off of oil prices. And then again, uh, and you know, Goldman Sachs thinks the same thing, so it's not just me, but I, I just think over the, the rest of this year, we're gonna see a strengthening in crude oil prices as long as the OPEC plus agreement holds together and they don't try decide to radically increase volumes on the global market. So I think it's gonna be a pretty positive outlook for the industry for the rest of this year. Well, that's a good outlook, but um, you know, in the past there have been discussions on OPEC. Are they really maintaining the levels they're saying, uh, you know, in the past it hadn't been that way. Have they tightened up the reins to really follow through with the cuts? Uh, yeah. Do you feel they've, they've been doing that now? Cause wasn't that way in the past. Right. Yeah, no, I, they've had pretty good discipline here this year, uh, maintaining their, their quotas, each country. Uh, you still have squawking from Iraq and Iran who want to put more oil on the market than, than their current quotas are. Um, and, you know, even the Russians last year, of course, we saw that, that from Russia last year. But, but this year, they, you know, I think every, every member country there has decided, you know, they really need stronger prices to maintain their, their country's economies. And to do that, they have to be disciplined on these quotas. So uh, it's been... Yeah over 90% compliance every month. Let's talk about, um, we're in session and uh, we had a mixer last week and you we did. did and gave us an update. And uh, so uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, what's happening at the Texas Capitol with the big freeze and Snowgate. What, what are the elected officials looking like they're going to do to make sure we never have to endure Snowgate again? Well, you can call me cynical if you like, uh, but my cynicism is based on 20 years as a lobbyist in Austin. And what I see happening in the legislature right now is pretty disturbing, to be honest with you. Uh, although the news, quote, news that comes out of it, you know, seems to indicate that they're, they're both the House and Senate are moving major legislation, which is true. Uh, the, the bills coming from the House conflict with the bills coming from the Senate. And this is exactly what happened in 2011 in the wake of the freeze in 2011. We had competing bills coming out of the House and Senate. And then the people moving those bills uh, carefully timed things out so that uh, it all got down to the final week of the session and they quote, ran out of time to reconcile the two competing versions of the bills. And I will tell our listeners, I believe that's exactly the strategy that is taking place in the legislature right now that, uh, you know, uh, the House bill in particular looks pretty strong in terms of winterizing facilities that really needs to get done. Um, and the Senate bill is also uh, 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 has provisions that address that, but they're different and they have to be reconciled and you have mm -hmm. to have a final piece Matching of legislation. Them. Yeah, that both houses agree to. And I'm afraid uh, based on 20 years experience, 
that what we're seeing here is an effort to subtly run out the clock and do nothing again. And I hope I'm wrong about that. And I'll apologize to members of the legislature if I am. But if we get to the end and y'all have done nothing, then I'm right, because that's what it seems to be happening right so now. So then let's break it down of why is this? So these are the big wind and solar lobbyists that are... Um, no, I, I don't think it's wind and solar. I think it's the power generators uh, who are working hard to kill any legislation because the current system works for the power generators. The okay. companies like NRG and Calpine mm -hmm. and others that are big power generators in this state, they got to charge $9,000 Per, per megawatt hour of generation for two solid days during that freeze event. And that netted them more income than they had achieved for the entire year in 2020, okay? Mm -hmm. So the system as it's structured today works for them. It doesn't work for anybody else in the state, but it works for the power generators. And, and that's who basically killed all the legislation in 2011 too. And, and I just think that that's what we see happening in the Capitol right now. and. Uh, I'm hoping and praying that the Lieutenant Governor and the Speaker uh, will get together and find a way to reconcile their legislation and overcome uh, this kind of opposition to, to doing anything constructive. Well, I think that if it doesn't happen, I think that there's going to be some non-electable elected officials because that's what they promised. Well, I do too. I hope so anyway. Yeah, you know, just vote them out of office because I don't seem to be really focusing on what their constituents are asking them to do, which is let's let's fix this once and for all. Let's switch gears and talk about Brookshire Hathaway. They yeah. um, made a big announcement. Um, so they're, they're just this huge company too, right? Mm -hmm. you know? Warren Buffett's company, yeah. Right, Warren Buffett. He's, he's got their finger, they've got their fingers in a lot of different little things. What was the announcement and yeah. how is that going to affect us? Well, see, this is another thing the power generators came out strongly against because it actually addresses the real problems in the grid. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway's plan uh, presented to the legislature would have the, the ratepayers, uh, customers fund $8 billion in upfront investments made by Berkshire Hathaway to build 10 new natural gas fired generating plants across the state at strategic locations that would be fully winterized impervious to the kind of freezing conditions we just experienced. They would have on-site storage of natural gas, uh, seven full days of fuel, which have more than gotten us through that freeze event. Uh, and they would only come online during weather emergencies. And Goldman Sachs asked that in return, they'd be allowed to recoup their upfront $8 billion of cost with a rate of return on investment of 9.3%. So very reasonable rate of return. It would result in a increased power bills for the average home customer of about $3 a month to pay for this so over 10 years. So it's a very reasonable plan. And of course, the power generators lobby came out fiercely against it. Uh, some members of the legislature who also uh, don't want to do anything came out against it. Uh, but it's a, it's a strong plan. You know, it's exactly the kind of thing the state needs to do to right. properly to have a grid that actually works during these conditions. So I, I really commend uh, Berkshire Hathaway for coming forward with this plan. Well, let's hope that uh, some of the legislators catch on to this and, and start pushing it through. It'd be interesting to see if the oil and gas industry is gonna support this since we have not had baseload or anything, natural gas facilities in quite some time. I think they should be supporting this. Well, David, that is all the time we have for this segment, but when we return from break, we will be joined by David Ramson Wood, recent author of a five-star on Amazon book. You're listening to you in the Wolf Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kim Bilotto. 
wanting to talk to you about how to age gracefully. As a woman, my appearance is important to me. It makes me feel good about myself when I feel I'm taking care of myself. And I have been visiting a woman for many years who has helped me with my wrinkles, my skin's elasticity. And you know, a lot of people think it's really just involving women, but it's not. Many, many men also seek treatments as they see the aging process occurring. I visit Cynthia, my friend of many years, who is a master injector for San Antonio Cosmetic Surgery. I feel very comfortable going to her and allowing her to just do her work on me. Pick up the phone, call Cynthia, make an appointment and see what she can do for you because it has taken years off of me. So if you want a free consultation with Cynthia, give them a call at 210-641-4320. Again, the number is 210-614-4320. Or you can visit their website at sanantoniocosmeticsurgery.net. Be sure to tell them that Kim within the Oil Patch Radio Show sent you. And now it's time for us to welcome on our guest, David Ramsden Wood. David, welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're excited to get you on the show because there's a lot to discuss pertaining to uh, a book that you have just released. But let's get started first and telling a little bit about you, your background. And you spent quite some time at Utter Dar- at Anadarko Petroleum, correct? I did. I did. I started I started my career out of school at Anadarko, actually. <clears throat> and um, so and, uh, I was 2001, I think, and I was in the Calgary office. And then I ended up in in Denver, although I was born in New York because oil is in my blood. My dad worked for Exxon Mobil when their headquarters were in New York. So I was born there. My sister was born there. I grew up in Calgary and I moved back to Denver in 2006 when, if you remember, Anadarko bought Kermagee and Western Gas on the same day in a cash $23 billion deal or something with a 364-day revolver. Um, and so anyway, that's how I ended up here and, and, I've uh, been in the industry for about 20 years, sold our company in 2018. So now I have a little bit different of a role than I, than I had during most of my career. You don't really have a look of oil and gas. You kind of have like a Californian look to you <laughs> versus an oil and gas look. And I don't really know what that looks like, but you just don't really fit like the very structured kind of oil and gas you kind of have a California look. So he doesn't well, look like he just came off a drilling rig, does he? Uh, right. I don't. So, so one of my very good friends, she worked for me for about uh, 10 years over the course of, of the end of my career. And um, I remember I was like 32 or 33. And I always, as you can imagine, I'm, I'm an engineer, but I don't sound like an engineer. I don't write like an engineer. I, my grammar is horrible. My punctuation is atrocious. But the content, <laughs> the content doesn't make me like an engineer. And I went to the field and it was on Fort Berthold Indian Reservation. I was working with Enterplus. We just got the deal. We were having a safety stand down for like 400 people. And I started my speech. I don't know why, because I never write these things down. I started my speech with, do these hands look like workers' hands? No. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't understand the trials and tribulations of you and minus 40 on a rig. And she's looking at me being like, are you an idiot? You're going to be murdered on the way out of here. Like, so anyway, um, but I'm, I'm rougher and tumbler now than I was back when I was 32. Well, that's great. Um, I know that uh, David and I want to get into the book, uh, and then uh, David, you can kind of take over from here. 
uh, you authored a book that has gotten a five-star rating from Amazon. So first of all, tell us the name of the book and, um, and, and why it's rating so high with Amazon. <laughs> well, it's only published on Amazon. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? You are not. Oh. Okay. So it's called <laughs> What the is Wrong with Everybody Else? Okay. What, what They Didn't Teach You in Business School. And um, I wrote it after I got fired, um, February 1st, 2012. And it was the it was the journey of rediscovering the things that made me really good at my job early in my career before I sort of deviated from, you know, and I would say I did what other people thought I should do at the time. And I probably didn't follow my heart as much as I should have. I didn't play politics, but I, I played politics in a way that was like the way I thought you should play them instead of the way that you should play them. So it was a journey of self-discovery and it's very um, self-deprecating. And I have, a, I have a big following on LinkedIn. So if I have a five-star rating, it's because all of them are kind um, because I don't write like David and some of the others for sure. But, but um, I'll, I'll, read, I'll read chapter one for you. Chapter one, losing weight. Eat less, exercise more. Yes, it is that easy, period, chapter two. That was a fast chapter. It's the only way to do it. The only way to do it. So, so anyway, so I, I really enjoyed the process, and and I like mentoring. And there's a lot of stories early in my career, not from later in my career, but just just the journey of self discovery, and in particular the impact of that firing on maybe changing my perspective on the way I should inter interact with people. Well, I mean, I'm, I know David wants to get. Uh, he's got a question for you, but before you move on, it, it is kind of nice. Uh, you're kind of a breath of fresh air because I do think, uh, and David, you might disagree with me, and, that, and that's okay. But I think the industry has a lot of stuffiness. Um, <laughs> they're very, very reserved, very careful, very calculating, and it doesn't always come across as the uh, best way to be, if you will, and to resonate with just the general population. And yes, it doesn't um, always come across as genuine, does it? Right. Yeah, it doesn't, but you do, and I think you actually can, um, a lot of people can relate to the way you communicate, and especially in the oil and gas industry, because we need more of that. And so I want to turn the mic over to David, but I think we're going to have a, a, a not enough time to get the question out. But uh, David, um, have you had a, tell me a little bit about what you're thinking with the book and how the industry can use it more to reach maybe the younger energy folks that well, are struggling. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's exactly the thing. And that's what David does so well, not just in the book, but, but on his website. And, and I follow him on his LinkedIn page. And uh, he has these uh, just fantastic insights uh, that we'll talk about as the interview goes on about, about the hypocrisy and intellectual dishonesty in the green movement and, uh, and uh, just about uh, the, the business in general that uh, I think every it, it would do everyone a lot of good to read and, and about life in general. I mean, it, it's that's what I like so much about your your website, David. It's not always focused on business at all. It's it's uh, a lot of time. It's just uh, general life observations that uh, you you don't write long pieces, but you write these pithy little pieces that uh, yeah. that contain a lot of uh, wisdom and good information in a very few words. Uh, a talent that I don't have. Well, I appreciate it. And I'll answer that quickly, which is authenticity is a real thing, but yeah. freedom, freedom of speech does not mean freedom of consequence. 
And so the breath of fresh air visionariness has been fired multiple times subsequent to writing the book, but I accepted <laughs> it. I accepted it a lot better because I understood what the trade-offs were. So I think that's the key is, is trade-offs and authenticity. That's great. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to in the old patch radio show, and we'll be right back. Hi, folks. Alvin Bailey here. Did you know Agreco is proud to sponsor In the Oil Patch Radio Show? Agreco has served Texas oil fields for over 10 years, supporting producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. They service everything from pump jacks with a single 200 kilowatt unit to massive gas processing facilities requiring 50 megawatts or more. Agreco is your dedicated engineering partner for diesel and natural gas generators, as well as battery power solutions. Call Agreco today at 1-800-AGRECO. That's 1-800-A-G-G-R-E-K-O. Hey, you. Do you want to join the fastest-growing oil and gas network in Texas? Ma'am, I'm all for growing my business, so you've got my attention. What is it? TEAK is the Texas Energy Advocates Coalition. They hold business mixers to help businesses grow and network. Any cost to join? For the next 90 days, it's completely free, no charge to join. But they do want like-minded individuals to attend who are interested in growing their business and networking. Well, I want to join. Where should I go? Go to shalemag.com slash TEAK and click on the join link. Enter your information and we'll get you set up. Join the Texas Energy Advocates Coalition at shalemag.com slash teak today. And we're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is David Ramsden Wood recent author of a five-star rating on Amazon book, book you definitely want to check out. David, I'll pass to you. I know you're anxious to ask some questions as well. Yeah, yeah, David, uh, thanks again for being on the show. I, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on as a guest is you, you just, you. one thing I noticed, noticed about you is you're not shy about calling out the green movement as, as we talked about a little bit ago for a, for the intellectual dishonesty they engage in, and this this past week, one of the one of the pieces you posted on LinkedIn uh, was about this new green movement line that well, it's it's better to burn you know clear cut forests and burn biomass as fuel than it is to to burn fossil fuels uh, for for electricity. And I just wanted to give you a first of all a chance to kind of talk about that one and why that's so wrong. Yeah, I mean, so so if the true goal is CO2, and we talk about the use of trees consuming CO2, yeah. cutting any of them down, and, and especially the fact that we cut wood chips, we export them to Europe, because they so like the, the, the carbon footprint to get the trees to Europe to meet this renewable standard is just so disingenuous and dishonest. And then they say, well, but trees are renewable and the carbon that's released from coal is very different because it's already been sequestered, but the trees are different and we can just replace trees. And, and I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. What, what we need to be talking about to me, um, if we were honest, is scarcity. And I recently started reading Bill Gates' book, um, How to Avoid a Climate Crisis. I disagree with him on some of the goals and some of the, the potential side effects. But I totally agree with the way he's characterized it all. And, and so I just wish that we would have a conversation and say, it's not about climate change, it's about scarcity. 
And if we're thinking about a thousand years on the planet, what are we going to do with natural resources on a planet that grows to 10 billion people? And I just don't think there's a space for biomass because it's, it's not what the stated goal is, which then makes me doubt the rest of what they say. What about the Biden infrastructure plan that was announced this week? Um, and the infrastructure, the, not infrastructure? Right, exactly. I mean, all these massive new subsidies for electric vehicles, for wind, for solar. Uh, what good is that really doing us as a country? Uh, not, not just in terms of dealing with climate change, but making sure the lights stay on. Yeah, I mean, I think we saw in the Texas crisis that when you have intermittence, and, and yes, of course, in a scarce world, I'm a huge supporter of wind and solar because they make sense. I'm yeah. not a supporter of the two cents an hour, two cent a kilowatt hour subsidy paid to wind as an example that allows them in a wholesale market to stay on when others have to shut off. But when I looked at that Biden plan, the fourth, the fourth largest item was $174 billion in EV credits, yeah. which is you know, as, as some would say, electric vehicles are rich families' third car. <laughs> and and I had a friends on, on a hockey tournament. I wrote about this, as you know, when I went to Omaha. They drove seven hours from Omaha, from Denver to Omaha for this tournament. Because it was zero, this was the week of the polar vortex, their, their range on their Tesla battery went from 340 miles to 100. So they had to stop three times in charge. And because there was no combustion um, engine, the heat has to be generated through a switch. Their switch broke. And so the car was 15 degrees Fahrenheit inside. They had to buy blankets and they almost had to abandon the car. And I'm sorry, I'm not gonna expose my family to driving long-term out of town in an electric vehicle when that's a risk. And so again, it's trade-offs about benefits. I think hybrids are a great car and we don't talk nearly enough about those. Well, that, isn't that the truth? You know, when, when you talk about the, the inability to charge the cars in, in an emergency, we saw the same thing happen, what was that, three years ago when the big hurricane hit California and all the people from Tes who own Teslas had a very difficult time getting out of the state because they, they did, didn't have any place to recharge their car before they left Florida. And so they had a really difficult time getting out of the way of the hurricane. Everything is trade-offs, and I would just be thankful of politicians to um, have the honest conversation that we need this and that, and these are the trade-offs. David, let's take a quick break. You're listening to In the Wallpatch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. The vision of the Women's Energy Network is to be the premier organization that educates, attracts, retains, and develops professional women working across the value chain. Also known as WEN, our mission is to develop programs that provide networking opportunities and foster career and leadership development of women who work in the energy industry. Thousands of women are breaking ground in energy industry careers every year, and 4,000 of them are already members of the Women's Energy Network across our 14 chapters. Members receive exclusive access to mentoring, job boards, group discussions, member-only networking events, expert speaking engagements, and more. If you'd like more information, go to womensenergynetwork.org slash South Texas or call 855-390-0650. back you're listening to in the oil patch radio show our guest today is david ramsden wood 
recent author of a five-star rating on Amazon. The book is called What That Is Wrong With Everybody Else. I do want us to stay on the topic of electric cars, EVs, and Teslas. So take it away. I know you have a question. Yeah, uh, last thing on Tesla. I, in, actually, I admire Elon Musk to some extent, so I, I don't mean to pound on him, but you recently made a great, great point about Tesla's recent purchase of thousands of Bitcoin uh, and how that actually offsets uh, the carbon emissions that they've already saved throughout the history of the car. And I would like to give you a chance to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I'm I'm with you. I, I think Elon Musk is 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 brilliant, very clearly. Um, he he's also went to my alma mater for my MBA, Queen's University in Canada. I think he dropped out because um, I mean, honestly, he had so much to 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 offer. But so so the carbon footprint of the 450,000 Bitcoin or so that were mined in 2020, it took something like 41 million tons of CO2. Uh, Tesla bought 45,000 Bitcoin, which was 10% of the entire amount mined in 2020. And that, that will now plug their profitability holes for the future. If you do that, that means they had 4.1 million tons of CO2 uh, carbon footprint. The entire 1.6 million cars they've ever sold in the history of their company have only saved 3.6. So it is ironic that number one, the reason they were added to the S&P was because they sell zero EV credits to other car companies so that they can meet a California standard. And in Q3, that was $390 million. Their profit was 371. So without those government credits, they wouldn't have been added to the S&P. And then they go and buy Bitcoin, which undoes all the carbon footprint that they wanted. Um, it's hilarious. And, and he knows it because he trolls them when he files mm -hmm. an 8K yeah. to yeah. change his CFO's name to the master of coin. And he's <laughs> now the techno king. I mean, like this is the world's richest man that's just trolling the SEC. It's it's actually hilarious. It is hilarious. I, I just uh, his uh, his Twitter feed is one of my favorite experiences every day. <laughs> it really <Just> is. <laughs> yeah, let's switch gears and talk about your hot takes of the day. Uh, in a post on your website, you point out that, that the cloud consumes about 10% of the world's energy today. And, it, and you make some compelling points about how most people are unaware of that. Today's show is really a very enlightening show for a lot of our listeners because uh, well, let's talk about your hot takes. Yeah, so so I mean, again, the, the and Bill Gates does a great job of it too. He always talks net zero. Um, and one of the conversations midway through the book, he says, well, Warren Buffett said, well, why can't we fly our airplanes with batteries? And it's because the energy density of a battery is 135th of the energy density of, of a gallon of, of, of oil. And so you need 35 times the weight of a car to carry the batteries, notwithstanding the minerals and everything. So we're always talking net zero. So the net zero really means trade-offs. If I pay cash as a rich person, which Bill Gates does, to offset my carbon footprint, I'm buying it from a market who's selling CO2 credits that might be credits that come from impossible meat, which doesn't actually have cows, but gets credit for avoided cows. Like that is not a real conversation. And so like what I really struggle with is Apple and Google and Amazon the amount of technology that goes on the cloud, the amount of data we store, every picture, every post, every tweet, every everything is now there. Ask any politician who got caught for having blackface 20 years ago. Somehow Thomas Jefferson for having slaves, we're not mad at him, but if you wore blackface 20 years ago, it's game over. 
Um, yeah. But everything, everything lives on the cloud and they need steady power. Can you imagine if you went onto Google and your Google didn't search anything, people would freak out. So they talk about net zero because they have wind and solar credits, but they need fossil fuels to run. And, right. and that's the most disingenuous part of this virtue signaling is we have vilified fossil fuels instead of encouraging them. And if we truly cared about net zero, Bill Gates would have called his book, Why We Need to Nuclearize to Decarbonize. Oh, that, yeah. is, yep. that is the truth. And, and not enough people are talking about that because we're too busy being woke and sounding impressive rather than actually having real thought and being impressive. What is your take, David, on the, the media and how it's played such a, a harmful role in disseminating disinformation, if you will, on the oil and gas? And can the oil and gas industry still thrive in these kind of circumstances here in the U.S. and worldwide? So I, I fear that we can't. I fear that the that there's, we're such a small segment of the population that I compare the oil and gas industry, let's say, let's say half a percent of the workers are here. Well, of the top 99, of the top 1%, those are the people who are being impacted in the tax plans too. And so when you have 99% of people who are mobilized and Biden and his infrastructure plan has $10 billion, I believe, for a volunteer climate corps. So when you have 99% of the world is vilifying the 1%, you don't have the ability to win. And, and I think the Democrats and populist leaders, regardless of right or left, know that because they're mobilizing all the forces. Like taxes are going up. Well, who voted for the Democrats generally? Either super rich people who don't care about their taxes or super poor people who don't pay taxes. And so it's the middle class that's now finding out that they're going to get hit by this. And I just don't think oil and gas can win in the court of public opinion. We can only win in the courts. Yeah. And it, so we had a great example of this today about the industry getting defeated, frankly, in the messaging effort. Uh, a group of, of folks here in Texas in the industry, leaders in the industry, uh, wrote a letter to Governor Abbott about, you know, how the state should lead the way to get to net zero. Uh, have the whole state be net zero by 2050. And, you know, it's all admirable stuff, fine, as far as it goes. But the communications that were sent out around that by the industry are these typical still, and I don't want to be overly critical, but they're these typical talking points that do not sound genuine. And, and, and something Kim and I complain about a lot is the industry does so much of this to themselves with that kind of poor communications planning. I mean, do you agree with that? I do. And, and it's, I think it's the fault of our major company CEOs. Right. And I want to talk about that when we come back from, from break, because there seems to be four major integrated companies, but we're going to hit a break. You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. Psst. Hey, you. Do you want to join the fastest growing oil and gas network in Texas? Ma'am, I'm all for growing my business. So you've got my attention. What is it? TEAK is the Texas Energy Advocates Coalition. They hold business mixers to help businesses grow and network. Any cost to join? For the next 90 days, it's completely free. No charge to join. But they do want like-minded individuals to attend who are interested in growing their business and networking. Well, I want to join. Where should I go? Go to shalemag.com slash teak and click on the join link 
Enter your information and we'll get you set up. Join the Texas Energy Advocates Coalition at shalemag.com slash today. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website, shalemag.com. Once again, that's shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G.com to learn more. Shale is your one-stop shop for growing your business. Pick up the phone today and call 210-240-7188. Again, 210-240-7188. We're back. You're listening to the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is David Ramsden Wood. David, before the break, we were discussing um, both Davids, the communication and public relations stance from big oil, and now the uh, associations are kind of following suit with talking points. And David, before the break, you said that you didn't think that the energy industry was going to win the public opinion uh, if you will, or win public opinion long-term. And I'm assuming it has a lot to do with uh, Biden-Harris and their energy agenda. But where does this go? When you say they're not going to win this long-term, so is this the coal industry that we're seeing unfolding right now that's pretty much out of business? And if that's the case, then my mind goes to, well, then we're going to have a real big, serious problem on the on the planet, aren't we? Uh, 100%. So, so I'd answer that a couple of ways. Yes, we are going the way of coal. We have 400,000 oil and gas companies. I project in the next three to five, we'll have 10. They'll all be big. They'll all be Exxon-ish, you know, whoever, Chevron. Um, but we're going to be much smaller. The other thing is the U.S. only produces 11 million barrels a day out of the world's 100 million barrels a day. And Saudi Arabia has a 53-year reserve life index at 10 million barrels a day, which means they could double or triple their production and be on par with Exxon from reserve life index. Now, there's technical challenges and capital challenges, but the point is we can get our oil from everywhere else. What we will continue to see as we move to the intermittents as we add wind power, as we add solar, is we will have more and more blackouts like we had in California in the summer and like we had in Texas in the winter. And consumers will discover, I wrote about this, XL Energy, who isn't even in Texas, spent $1.2 billion more on natural gas over that five-day period. Their entire revenue in 2020 was $11 billion. So in a five-day period, they spent 10%, all of which is passed on to consumers, and as we let our resources de- decline, we either need to import more natural gas or we need to produce more. And, and so it, we're, we're really in a tough place. And I blame the CEOs, you know, and I, I, I respect Vicki Hollab a lot. I've taken a lot of flack for that on Twitter, but I like what she's done um, and, and I appreciate her. She's yeah, also, too. let's be honest, she is a woman, the only woman who is a major oil company leader. I don't think she's fireable. And so why she isn't out there advocating more strongly, like the carbon credits that the API are supporting, it's a slippery slope. The second we, they're saying they want to do it instead of regulation, but you know there's regulation plus carbon credits, which is a financial mechanism, which creates friction, which creates fees for bankers. And Vicky should just be saying no. She should be buying every one of the competitors she can using her stock. And she should say no. 
And until the CEOs are willing to risk their own jobs, because honestly, they have enough money, it doesn't matter. The industry can't win. And we're just going to keep getting crammed in a corner and rely on international countries for providing our energy. Isn't this the same mistake uh, going down this path uh, on, on net, net zero, the same mistake the industry has made for the last 12 years or so on the ESG demands? From Absolutely. We've, we've made no headway. And, and so I'll, I'll give this as a story. Al Walker used to be my indirect boss at, um, in Anadarko. Yeah. Um, he changed the transaction uh, for, before Chevron bid them so that the management team would make $300 million. He made $100 million changing it the day before they knew an offer was coming. And then Conoco asked him to join the board to help them with their governance. And now he's raising a SPAC. So like, <laughs> like if we, we don't have an E problem, we don't have an S problem, we have a G problem and we flare too much and we use fresh water. Like yeah. this isn't that hard. Yeah. Well, I think if you talk to, a, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Commissioner uh, Christian here with the Texas Railroad Commission, but uh, he's probably the only really vocal commissioner that we have out of the three that really is is kind of pushing back on the executives as well and probably calling them out which is good for him uh let's move into um the freeze that happened here in texas i want to get your thoughts because this is the last segment what went right what went wrong uh, tell us where you think the state's policymakers should go uh, in their search for some real solutions to this issue of our grid because we all know it was a disaster people died yeah it was a disaster and, uh, hopefully we fix the problem. But uh, tell us what your thoughts are. Well, I mean, so number one, we saw the Suez Canal and I'm, this is a weird parallel. Stuff happens in our world that we can't totally predict and people die. And so, yes, there were some failures. I start with the coronavirus work from home. I think because employees were working from home and employees across different companies were working from home, people are distracted when they're at home and they don't necessarily get the magnitude of emergencies. So I don't think the communication was very good and that was exacerbated by work from home. Number two, the fact that they didn't have natural gas plants as critical infrastructure and that they shut down power to ESPs and SWDs, which then reduced the natural gas flow into the plant so we couldn't produce it was problematic. Number three, do the wind turbines freeze? Yeah, but even if they don't, there's 29,000 megawatts of wind power that at some times was producing 1,000 megawatts of, of power. You cannot have a grid that's based on that. And the reason that companies keep investing there, and Warren Buffett said it explicitly in his recent article, is they're doing that for tax credits. And so it's the energy policy of our entire country to, to move away from renewables and decommission plants. They decommissioned 10 coal plants in the last 10, 20 coal plants in the last 10 years that would have provided more power to allow for this. So yeah. it's, it's a whole bunch of problems and it's all based on the fact that we won't have real conversations because the media doesn't want people to understand how nuanced problems are. And the wind lobby was perfect when Michael Bloomberg, who ran from president of the United States is worth $50 billion, owns the Bloomberg News Enterprise. And the day after they published an article saying wind wasn't to blame. And he personally is anti-fossil fuels. So we don't trust big oil, but why do we trust big media when, when that is like facts? 
Yeah, and it wasn't just Bloomberg. I mean, our own media in the state was saying the same thing. The Texas Tribune, the first article the Texas Tribune published was a piece that, that said, oh, the problem wasn't wind, it's all natural gas. Well, at one point, natural gas was supplying 70% of the power being generated on the entire grid. Natural gas is the only reason the entire thing didn't collapse. But the only thing the Tribune and Bloomberg focus on is, oh gosh, it wasn't really wind's fault. You know, it just, it drives me crazy. And we hold California as the standard, which number one is more expensive from a kilowatt hour basis. But number two, they live in one of the most yeah. temperate climates in the entire United States and consume less power than you do in Minnesota. So you don't die if you don't have air conditioning. You do die when it's minus 40 in Minnesota and you don't have power. And, yeah. and we need to have those conversations. That is correct. David, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Where can our listeners go to get uh your book uh i'm assuming amazon but um the book the book is on amazon so you can track me down on amazon um if you're on linkedin you can connect to me on linkedin that's where i do most of my writing and i accept everyone's invites so please come um and then you can dm me and and ask whatever questions you want and we have a website at uh, www.hottakeoftheday.com thank you very much david great show and we look forward to having you back on here soon to talk some more common sense oil and gas nonsense that's going on out there, if you will. Well, Thank I you. sure appreciate it. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.